Hi, I'm retired NYPD Detective Vic Ferrari, and welcome to NYPD Through the Looking Glass, where you'll get unique insight into the New York City Police Department. Before we get started, check out my Amazon author page where you'll find my series of behind-the-scenes NYPD books for $10 paperback and $2.99 ebook download, including the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos. All my books are $10 paperback. They make great Christmas gifts. Order them now, throw them in your stocking stuffer, and you don't have to worry about anything. On top of that, in the coming weeks, my new book, NYPD, Laughing in the Line of Duty, will be out shortly. So last week I went into a little bit. My dog was, uh, was dying of kidney failure. Unfortunately, last weekend I had to put him down. And, um, you know, we, I knew getting an Irish wolfhound that their life expectancy was between six and eight years old. It's kind of one of those things you, you know what you're getting yourself involved in. But uh, the other wolfhound I had previous to this guy, Dougal, he lived to be 11 years old. So I really thought I would get, you know, nine, 10 years out of him. But unfortunately, I had to put him down. So like I said, I haven't been able to schedule guests. But this week, I've got a, I've got a really interesting story. Before we get to that, and on the good news front, uh, I've been in touch with retired ATF agent Dominic, I'm going to butcher his name, Polifrone. He was the guy that went undercover in the 1980s um, and, and gained the confidence of the Iceman, Richard Kuklinski. Richard Kuklinski was a guy from North Jersey, self-proclaimed hitman. He did kill a bunch of people, but then when they captured him, he told a lot of bullshit stories and said he killed upwards of 100 people. I'm not buying it. But anyway, Dominic was was a really brave ATF agent. What he did was he went undercover. He gained uh, Richard Kuklinski's confidence. And he purchased a couple of guns from him. And then Kuklinski wanted to purchase cyanide from, from Dom because that's the way he used to kill people with cyanide. So Dom went undercover, gained this guy's confidence, purchased guns from him, got Kuklinski to confide in him about several homicides. And ultimately, they captured uh, Kuklinski in probably about 1980. And he was sentenced for multiple homicides and he went to jail for the rest of his life. The ironic thing is my aunt at the time lived in Dumont, New Jersey, down the block from Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman. And my brother and I, when we were children, we used to go past his house and there was a little park down there. And uh, I remember it was a big deal. I was like 13 or 14 years old when the story hit the newspapers. And my aunt was like, yeah, we used to see him all the time. So you never know who's on your block or who you're living next door to. So anyway, let's get to my story. So in, the, in probably about 1994, I had just gotten back from my tour in narcotics. I was bitter. I didn't like the narcotics division. Um, it wasn't what I thought it would be. I took a step backwards. I go back to my precinct, which was the 50th precinct in the Riverdale section of the Bronx. And uh, my partner was in narcotics at the time. So I was basically floating. I was doing four to 12s. I was bouncing around. I didn't have a steady partner, and that was fine with me. I was—I went from being this really active cop for about six months. I took off, and I was—I was making arrests, but I—I I really didn't have the passion that that I once had before. And I was more about going out with my friends on four to twelves and just going out after work and having a good time. So one night, it was Saturday night, and um, my partner and I went into the station house, probably about seven eight o'clock at night take our meal hour. And we were coming out, um, this female cop handed me a sheet of paper and she said, listen, she said, um, 
somebody called up, I think it's a cardiac, they're yelling and screaming in Spanish, and uh, could you guys go up there and check this out? I said, sure, no problem. And the apartment was, I think it was on, it was in Sector David of the 50th Precinct, which was either Cedric Avenue or Webb Avenue, I forget. And before I get rolling with this story, defense attorneys, if you're listening out here, out there, this happened over 30 years ago. My memory isn't what it used to be. So before you get like your hopes up and you're going to get this guy out of jail, I'm just trying to piece this story together the best I can. It's not, you know, fresh in my mind. So anyway, my partner at the time was this kid, Vinny Gadis, and I'm going to get into his sad story later. He and I drive up to this apartment building. It was a six-story walk-up, and uh, we park out front. We go upstairs. It's a hot summer night, and as we're going up the stairs, I think the apartment was on the fourth or fifth floor, and as we're going up the stairs, you can hear a lot of screaming, a lot of yelling. So now we're being cautious. We're going up the stairs. The apartment door is wide open, and when we go inside, there's a bunch of people inside. So we're kind of swimming through the apartment, and there's a galley kitchen. And as we push through this several people, I see a pair of legs laying on the floor, and then there's a person on top of the legs, and I hear screaming coming from the kitchen. So I, I walk into the kitchen, and there's this woman laid out on the floor. She's covered in dry blood. And there's a young man on top of her and he's screaming, mom, 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 get up, get up. He's going back and forth between English and Spanish. So what winds up happening is I I said, get up, please, please get up. I get him off the woman and she's just a bloody mess. And if you've ever cut yourself, you know, blood is bright red immediately. But then over time, it dries and turns into like a, a rust color. And that was all over the all over this kitchen. It was on the walls. It was on the phone. It, there was a wall phone. I remember there was blood everywhere. So I take the young man off off the woman. I walk him into the, into the living room and I sit him down. And the apartment's been ransacked. And the guy is just sobbing. You know, he's inconsolable. And I start asking him questions. And again, I wasn't putting the screws to him. I'm just trying to figure out what's going on. And you know what happened. And he went from being a, a crying mess to all of a sudden his answers were measured. So every time I asked him a question, he repeated the question back. So I said, when was the last time you saw your mother? When was the last time I saw my mother? Oh, like three hours ago. Was everything okay with you two? Was everything okay with us? Yes. So it, it started getting weird with him. In the meantime, I forget, it was either me or my partner got on the radio. And when you're in a crime scene like that, you call for the patrol supervisor, you call for the detectives, and you call for an ambulance. Even though it was obvious the woman is dead, as they taught us in the police academy, your cops, not medical professionals, call an ambulance. So the cow, we're waiting on the cavalry, and we're, ta- we're, we're you know talking to him and writing things down. And I turned to my partner and I said, listen, do me a favor, because I was going to deal more with the people coming through the door. My partner kind of was dealing with the young man more. I said, just write down everything he tells you in your memo book because, I I don't know, something's just not right about this. And as I'm looking around the apartment, it's ransacked. But then after a couple of seconds, it's weird and it looks staged. So all the drawers are dumped open from, from, uh, you know, clothes and things are dumped all over the floor. But then the drawers are placed back inside the furniture. And that's odd because when a burglar breaks into your house or apartment... They're dumping stuff out of your drawers. They're looking for valuables. They're looking for money. They're looking for jewelry. They don't take the time after dumping the contents of of your drawer onto the floor to put the drawers back inside the furniture. 
On top of that, the woman's bag was dumped upside down, but placed right side up, which was odd. And I I think the credit cards were left behind, which back then, 1994, you didn't have chip readers or cameras at a lot of locations. That's the first thing bad guys would take is the credit cards because they would max them out. So while we're looking around the apartment and we're kind of talking to this guy, and again, we're not putting the screws to him. We're just asking him basic questions. The sergeant shows up. And I wasn't a fan of this sergeant because he had gotten dumped. He was working in a cushy precinct in Manhattan. And for whatever reason, he wound up in our precinct. And he was just an odd guy. So he says, who got on the radio and called this in? And I said, I I did, boss. He goes, let me talk to you. And he pulls me out in the hallway. He goes, do you realize this is a hot Saturday night? And I'm just looking at him. I go, yeah. He goes, you don't go on the radio. He goes, what if the, what if the news media is listening on police scanners? They, they could be up here and they're going to get in the way. And I says, well, how did you want me to get in touch with you? And you got to remember, this is before cell phones. So I didn't have a cell phone. And he's telling me, just use, why didn't you use the phone? I go, I'm not touching anything in the apartment. It's a crime scene. I mean, the woman was killed in the kitchen, and that's where the phone is. And that's the first thing they teach you. You don't touch anything. And I wasn't going to use the phone. So while I'm debating with this clown, EMS shows up. They come in, and they barely, I mean, they just, you know, took her pulse. And it was obvious she was she was dead for many hours. So they leave, and I get a name. And now the detectives show up, and the detectives are looking around. They're asking us questions. And uh, the detectives take the young man, not in handcuffs. They just, you know, okay, you know, they're treating him as a victim at this point. They said, all right, take a ride with us. We're going to get to the bottom of this. And they leave. So I was tasked with my partner to gather the evidence, but at the direction of the detectives. And the New York City Police Department, I'm telling how it was then. I'm sure things have changed. Back then, um, you had what was called the crime scene unit. And the crime scene unit handled all the heavies. They used to drive around in these big blue blue station wagons, and they took photos. They took samples of blood, serology. Those were the guys that came in, and like what you see on television now with CSI. In the old days, it was the NYPD's crime scene unit. I don't know what it is now. So they come in, and they're telling me, okay, voucher this, voucher this closed, you know. And I remember I had to get a brown paper bag to put some several bloody items in a brown paper bag. And I'm there for several hours. And then my partner and I return to the precinct. When we get to the precinct, I go upstairs and I see like the detectives are huddled around. And they're talking to these, um, the the young man is there and they're talking to these several well-built guys in their like 30s or 40s. And what I found out was these three guys were the victim's sister. And they lived directly across the street from the murder victim. And uh, they were talking to them in Spanish, and uh, they left with their nephew. And I said to the detective, so what's going on? And they said, well, he knows more than he's saying. We don't, we're not sure if he did it, but he certainly knows more than he's saying. His story isn't adding up. And after a couple of hours, he didn't want to lawyer up, but he said he wanted to go home. So we didn't want to push it because once he says, I want to talk to a lawyer, that's it. You can't talk to him anymore. So before he left, the detectives told his uncles, listen, maybe you can get more out of him because he's not really talking to us. His story really isn't believable. He seems to know more. Maybe maybe you could get this out of him. So they all left. So with the New York City Police Department, the first cops that arrive at a crime scene or a homicide, 
that cop or cops are tasked with before the body leaves to go down to the morgue for an autopsy you got to fill out what's called a toe tag and it's a little piece of oak tag with a hole in it with a string and you write your your information your name your shield your six-digit tax number and the victim's name you write on this little tag and you tie it around their big toe and the medical examiner taking the body to the Bronx more the following morning Sunday morning I had to get up early go to the precinct throw on my uniform drive to uh, at the time the morgue was in Jacoby Hospital in the Bronx so I go down there and uh, it's a skeleton crew it's a Sunday morning and it was just like some young guy working there and I had some paperwork and I hand him the paperwork and I says I'm here to see this victim he says okay and he comes out and he wheels out this gurney he pulls the sheet off 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 the body and there's a black guy laying there and I said nope Hispanic female and I point to the victim's name he goes oh 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 sorry sorry Puts the sheet back over the guy's head, wheels him into the, this refrigerated room, comes out a couple of seconds later, pulls the sheet off another body, and it's a Hispanic guy that looked like a wino. I says, dude, what, what are you doing? Are you breaking my balls or what? And he goes, uh, uh, I go, can you read? And I'm pointing to the victim's name. I said, you know what? I'm going in there. So I don't know if they will be between morgues or because I remember in Bellevue, I think the body in, in the morgue in Manhattan, the bodies were in those sliding drawers like you see in television. But the morgue at the time in the Bronx, like, I don't know what they were doing. It was like this big refrigerated room. Like if you ever gone to a 7-Eleven and you open up the refrigerated case to grab a soda and you can see inside there's a big refrigerated room. That's kind of what it was like. I went in there and it was ice cold. And there was six or eight gurneys there with sheets pulled over them. And even though it was really cold in there, you're never going to get past that smell of death. I mean, it just was bad. And the sheets, some of the sheets are kind of stained. It's disgusting. So I'm walking around looking at people's feet. And finally, I see my handwriting on this toe tag. The guy pulls the sheet off. And I said, yeah, that's her. And I, and I positively identify the victim. So after that nice experience, I drive back up to the precinct. And I see the detectives. They're all happy and celebrating. And I'm like, well, what happened? And they says, he cracked. I says, well, what happened? And uh, basically what happened was you got this 19 or 20 year old guy. He's living with his mother and he's a crackhead and he comes and goes as he pleases. And, you know, he's being abusive towards her. You know, these mood swings that crackheads have. He's stealing from her. I think it started becoming physical at some point. The relationship where he was putting his hands on his mother and she couldn't take it anymore. So she told her son, listen, I can't, I can't take this anymore. I, I don't want you living here. You got to leave. And he became enraged and he picked up a carving knife in the kitchen and stabbed her to death. And he stabs his mother to death. She falls down on the floor and now he's got a problem on his hands. So calmly and coolly, he takes off all his clothes and the murder weapon he puts in a plastic bag. And then what he does is he takes a shower. After he gets out of the shower, he gets dressed. He takes the plastic bag with all the, ev with all the evidence, right? And as he's leaving the apartment, he leaves the door ajar. Because in his mind, he's figuring, all right, it's a, it's a warm summer night in the Bronx. 
someone, one of the neighbors is going to come by and see the door ajar, knock on the door and say, hey, you're home, you're home. So one of the neighbors is going to walk in, discover her. They're going to call 911. And then what he's going to do is he's going to come back later and say, oh, my God, I can't believe this happened. He, he, but what winds up happening is he leaves the door ajar and he leaves with the evidence, gets on the train, goes into Manhattan somewhere, dumps it in a garbage uh, bin, stays away for about three, four hours, gets back on the train, comes back up to the Bronx, goes up to the apartment, and what does he see? The door is still ajar. No one has discovered his mother dead in the room. So now he's really got a problem on his hands. So he goes into the apartment and he panics. First, he calls his uncles that live across the street. Then what he does is he gets on the telephone and he calls the precinct. And he, he tells them to come up there, and that's where they thought it was a cardiac. So anyway, the next day, when the detectives go down to pull him out of bed and speak to him again, when they hit the hallway of this building, his uncles had confronted him. He probably was leaving. He probably was looking to take off. I don't know this for sure, but I think he was trying to leave, and his uncles caught him in the hallway. And they confronted him, and they, they're yelling at him in Spanish, what happened? What happened to your mother? The detectives know that you know more than what's going on. And he cracks. And thank God the two detectives, and actually one of them, well, they were both Hispanic. Actually, one of them died of cancer, unfortunately. He was a really nice guy. They were in the hallway. They kind of stayed back behind the stairwell, and they listened. And in Spanish, he gave it up, and he explained what happened and how sorry he was. And then the detectives came out threw the handcuffs on him, brought him into the precinct, and uh, he gave a second statement. And, uh, you know, he was convicted. I think he took it to trial, and he was convicted of murder. And uh, I checked just to make sure before I told this story. He's still in, in a New York State penitentiary, and I hope he's there for the rest of his life. And it's going on 30 years, but, I mean, listen, if you're capable of stabbing your mother to death, you have no business walking the streets, I'm sorry, because every, every single, every other person living in this world wouldn't stand a chance with this guy. So that's my story about walking into a homicide where the killer is still in the room. But there's a second sad part of this story, if it can get any sadder. The cop I was working with, his name was Vinny Gadis. Vinny was a nice kid. He grew up in Rockland County. And uh, while I was floating on the 4 to 12, I had worked with him several times before this evening. And I liked him. He was a sharp cop, very intelligent, you know, good heart. Um, he had worked in the 4-6 precinct in the South Bronx for a couple of years. He wanted a change of pace. He wanted to be closer to home. And working, a lot of cops liked working in the 50th precinct because it was one of the northernmost precincts in the Bronx. And it ran right alongside the, uh, the Major Deegan Expressway. So... A lot of guys, what they do is they just jump on the highway and they drive upstate New York. They don't have to cut to the Bronx before getting to the highway. So two years later, in 1996, Vinny and his partner were working in the 50th Precinct. They, it was, it was in, I think it was in the spring. It was the afternoon. I definitely remember that. They get called out to a domestic violence call. You got this guy beating up his girlfriend. They get there. She wants him arrested. There's signs of domestic violence. And I don't know if either the guy threw a mirror at Vinny and his partner or while he was fighting with the girlfriend, but a mirror broke. A large mirror had broken in the apartment. When they go to arrest this guy, and from what I remember, he was a pretty large man, he puts up a fight. And they start fighting with this guy. 
And while they're fighting with this guy, a shard of glass gets Vinny in his femoral artery. And now Vinny starts going down. And they rush him to the hospital. And from what I remember, um, he, he, he died the following night or that night. And it's sad because he was a really nice guy. He was engaged. I actually knew his fiance before I knew him. Uh, it just put a lot of people through a lot of stress. And Vinny was a really good guy. And, um, you know, I, I just, I enjoyed working with him. And it's just one of those things in the New York City Police Department where, unlike other jobs, where somebody you're working with, you know, can be killed or yourself can be killed in, a, in, in, in an instant. So that's my sad story for the day. Um, I want to thank all my listeners for listening to this podcast, especially those in Oakland, California. And by the way, I'm a diehard Oakland Raider fan, and we've got another season going down the toilet, but I just wanted to shout out to the fans in Oakland, California, Tampa, Florida, Annapolis, Maryland, Japan, Saudi Arabia, and Iceland. It's amazing. I go on uh, through my uh, Buzzsprout account. I can see where I'm getting hits on these po- on my podcast, and I just can't believe that the con- people in this country are a interested in my podcast and people from other countries. So I'll, I want to thank you. And if you work in law enforcement and you'd like to be a guest on this show, please drop me a note on Twitter and Instagram at VicFerrari50. And we'll talk. You know, I like having cops and people from law enforcement, not just the NYPD, but from different law enforcement agencies to get a better perspective on what's going on out there. Also, if you've got a question about the show, if there's something you want me to talk about or you've got questions about the New York City Police Department, again, on Twitter and Instagram, at VicFerrari50. And if you've enjoyed the content, check out my Amazon author page again. Type in my name, Vic Ferrari, like the car where you can preview all my books for free, including NYPD Law and Disorder, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division, the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops Crime and Chaos, and I've written a couple of comedies too, Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate, which is stories about me growing up in the Bronx and rubbing elbows with mobsters as a kid and just the crazy shit my brother and I got ourselves involved in. And I also wrote a comedy called Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die, That deals with the ridiculous things that people do to shorten their life expectancy. And thanks again. Uh, Thanks again for tuning in. I'll have another episode out next week. And God bless.